Hello, welcome to Relatable. We have quite the treat for you. Anish Chopra, president of Care Journey and the former chief technology officer for the Obama administration, joins us for a fascinating conversation about a career in politics and business. Anish is a visionary, and he provides us unique access to the internal workings of cabinet-level politics. He discusses why and how he authored the book Innovative State and why a diverse experience is the perfect backdrop for where he is today. Anish is magnetic, and throughout our interview, I was captivated, as I'm sure you will be. His comments on the spirit of generosity and the importance of leaving an exchange with the other person or other people better for it is imperative for success. I'm so thankful Anish agreed to spend time on Relatable. Enjoy this episode. Anish, you and I have the opportunity of working together in another capacity, <laughs> and so I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk with me. And uh, we're gonna—you've had such an interesting path, and so I feel like there's a lot to cover, and I have a lot of questions for you. Just like healthcare is your passion, this podcast is my passion, and I'm really dedicated to helping people navigate their life and their career and really benefiting from people like you and others who have worked a path that probably isn't a completely a straight line and I feel like there's a lot when you're younger that people tell you what do you want to be what do you want to be and you're just supposed to have this answer and I don't think that most of us have that answer and it's really an evolution of how you experiences that you have and people that you meet and it influences choices and then lo and behold, 20, 25, 30 years later, you, you're, you're somewhere that maybe you didn't necessarily intend to be. And so I'm hoping that as people listen to this, if they're at a crossroads, they might get some inspiration about different types of careers or also just hearing about people, their challenges and how they overcame them or resilience that they might get some inspiration. So I really appreciate your time and um, love to jump right in. Talk a little bit about your current role right now. You're the president of Care Journey, and I'm interested uh, for people that aren't aware of Care Journey and, and what they do. Maybe just talk a little bit about your role and what it is that you do as a president. Maybe even talk a little bit like what's a day in the life, which maybe not is not typical or, or the same thing all the time, but just give us a little bit, a little hint or scoop on that. Well, let me, I'll, I'll start by saying maybe a little bit of context and then I'll share the company. Sure. I uh, served in the Obama administration in a role we created called Chief Technology Officer under the principle that we would harness the power of technology, data, and innovation to solve big problems. In healthcare, one of our biggest challenges is that we've not taken full advantage of the data sets that have been made available to learn what works and what doesn't, the way in which we can communicate a patient's condition to their care team, and that we have a reward system uh, that benefits organizations who can help people stay healthy rather than only care for them when they're sick. Care Journey was born out of the same philosophy that we have this weakness in the system that we can 
address if we work together. The U.S. government's made uh, unprecedented amounts of information available, and the most valuable of that information is the Medicare-linked claims history. So you could say every single person in the Medicare program and understand, did they get the best possible care available to them or not? And if so, why or why not? Rather than having every hospital, every health plan, every retailer, pharmacist, try to build a relationship with Medicare to mine it, we at Care Journey had the philosophy that we should collaborate. Let's tap this data set and let's answer the questions we all wanna learn from and do so in an open uh, collaborative spirit. Our philosophy is that by understanding the move to value-based care, we could identify patients who are getting the best possible care and if so, by which physicians or clinical networks and conversely, where do they have the most opportunity for improvement by physicians or clinical networks. And it turns out lots of folks wanna learn about who they should be partnering with or how they can benchmark to improve performance. And so we built a business model around open collaboration. 80 plus organizations have said that they're willing to uh, almost share the output uh, if, if it means that we can sort of rising tide lifts all boats, we'll, we'll all sort of improve the, the performance of the system. And we have competitors who are in the membership and they may comp fiercely compete in the open market, but they'll collaborate in tapping the Medicare data set for insights. And we see that role at Care Journey as a unique one. Our philosophy is uh, better to run transparency uh, in the open as opposed to selling some secret sauce that sits on top of a proprietary data set. And so the world's kind of you know carving itself out. Should we grade doctors, hospitals, and networks on some secret formula and uh, trust that to be effective? Or can we build something that works for everyone? And that's been the story of Care Journey. We're six years in uh, on, the, on that journey. Uh, uh, as president, I set vision uh, assist with member uh, support, uh, maybe even help guide the product roadmap. But uh, thankfully, Teresa, uh, not a lot of folks report directly to me. So I'm able to be a bit more of a free agent as it relates to my time. And we'll get into the time allocation, I suppose, yeah. in a moment. Yeah, that's so interesting. Would you say that care journey, just everything you just described, and I've, I've been getting educated and smarter in the industry of healthcare. Prior to that, I was mostly in the world of professional services doing mostly talent HR related activities. So I'm a quick study and I've been learning a lot as I've been affiliated with Care Journey. I'm curious, what you described to me sounds like a pioneer. You sound like it's cutting edge. It sounds like it's something that is not usual in terms of the collaborative nature of what, what we're doing and the partnering aspect of this and exactly what you described around you know, this is mine and I'm gonna hide it and I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna show you what I have, right? In, in terms of, so this idea that it's really the broader impact that you can have collectively. And so I'm curious, is that cutting edge? Is that something new that is in the industry that you're driving? Well, like many organizations, there there is a, um, almost every sector of the economy has some pre-competitive collaboration and it may be a very small part of what the industry does, or it could be a bigger part. And uh, we at Care Journey have tried to strengthen and expand that idea in healthcare. What is today massively competitive, 
very opaque, yeah. not really the, the default setting. Uh, we're carving out a niche to say, that may be the case for the core of what you do, but let's, let's, let's because none of us have tapped these Medicare data sets before and they're so significant, maybe this is the most efficient way to get there. So we're able to take advantage of a uniquely new asset mm-hmm. and be able to introduce a new default as to how to get there as opposed to, I think, the baseline, which is very few people know that it exists and take advantage of it. So we, we, in some ways, we've democratized access to information. Yeah. And that, that is a unique role uh, for us in healthcare. I think, too, transparency. That's such a, a conversation that I hear over and over is that this lack of transparency is such a problem. And so you're creating that, too, for sure, for people. That's tell, right. Tell me about this intersection. I mean, there's so many. You mentioned Obama and, and being part of that administration. So I'm sure people that are listening are like, oh, my gosh, let's talk about that. I'm interested in uh, holistically the, in, your passion in healthcare and how that intersects with the tech space and then how that manifested in, in working with with President Obama or if those things were separate and it's evolved. Right. So maybe let me ask the question. Tell me a little bit about how that role came to be and maybe that also could be an entree into you telling us a little bit about your path you know just just how you navigated to that spot where you were ultimately part of that administration yeah so president obama uh campaigned on the idea that we should do more to take advantage of technology data and innovation to solve the problems that he felt were top priority for the country and healthcare was on the list as to were climate change and uh, making sure that we could build a stronger middle class. That philosophy of having a role in the White House that could cut across the bureaucracy, cut across the different departments and say, you know, there are some common uh, sort of uh, technical capabilities that should be applied in each of these domains, being able to translate where we are gap, where we have gaps, where we have opportunities. That was what he felt the role of the CTO could be. And in a way, it was just an advisor to the president who had his trust to kind of look across the portfolio for for improvement. As luck would have it, Virginia's governor in 1999 had a similar point of view at a state level. Now, that was a Republican governor, and it was the beginning of the, you know, sort of dot-com bubble. And there was a big competition among the states to say, are you the internet capital of the world? And so from a marketing standpoint, uh, the governor had this view that we should put a cabinet level position to show the value of technology. And, and maybe that could attract new companies to come to the state. So it had more of a marketing spiel as opposed to uh, necessarily make government work better spiel. Not that they were mutually exclusive, just that it was a little bit more on the marketing side. When Governor Kane took office in 2006, we had gone through a couple rounds of this role, and Governor Kane really settled on a vision similar to what President Obama wanted. And so he kind of made me a chief technology collaborator as opposed to a marketing engine or fixing the internal IT systems. And that role fits perfectly in, in the healthcare discussion because on day one of the Kane administration, I collaborated with the Secretary of Health, uh, launching a health IT task force. How can technology make the healthcare system better? And while we were busy on a whole range of subjects, it was just funny that um, it was healthcare was my very first out of the gate uh, project. 
so in many ways, they, they're not the same Venn diagram. There's uh, technology for health, technology for education, technology for economic growth. Those are all different problems, but they have a commonality, which is uh, the, the new muscles born of the Silicon Valley era, if exercised in this way, could have a material impact uh, in advancing the, the overall goal. So that was the, that was the role, that was the opportunity. What was your degree? So uh, my degree was technically speaking uh, public policy, uh, but my concentration at the Kennedy School was science and technology policy. So uh, the way you, you, you the muscles of, of a policy degree are, are maximizing stakeholder returns as much as it was in a business school context, uh, shareholder returns. So for us, the shareholder are stakeholders and you want to apply analytic rigor, you want to study the problem, you want to field the team, you want to put projects together, you want to manage the portfolio, but towards a broader goal. So in my science and technology concentration, my thesis, my master's thesis was focused on how internet-based technologies would improve healthcare. So it was part of my degree in the sense that it's what I spent my time studying, mm-hmm. even though the actual tools of the job uh, we're, we're cross-cutting and not not domain specific. I'm curious because you you mentioned that the degree and and certainly just based on what you said, there's a a direct correlation to what you were studying, your thesis, and what you're doing. So my question is, how do you enter into a career of politics? How do you get affiliated with the Kane administration? How you know how does that happen? And what are the things that if someone is interested in in working in politics or you know leaving grad school it's like what is there a recipe (laughs) any guidance you have on that front relatable is sponsored by teresa freeman associates your one-stop shop for soft skills development speaking coaching and workshops if you'd like to hire teresa or for information on our upcoming workshops, visit www.TeresaFreemanAssociates.com for more information. Well, not that I had all the answers early in life, but I'll, I'll share with you how I made the luck happen the way I wanted the luck to fall out. I had interest in government, but in the context of solving what I thought was the biggest problem of our time, which is the healthcare was eating up more and more of our budget and it was constraining our ability to reinvest in any number of areas like economic competitiveness. So when I was in college, it was around the time that Bill Clinton was launching a healthcare reform program. I sort of explored the idea that healthcare would need a village in paraphrasing his uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, point of view. And that one thing I could do is to sit in different chairs around a proverbial table, the village, and say, look, there's gonna be a role of finance and capital markets. We have a private sector healthcare system. So that led me to get a job at Morgan Stanley where I worked on healthcare issues and learned a lot about the capital markets. I felt that there was a role for the internet. I thought this was this disruptive platform uh, and we should, we should really understand it to the fullest. And so that led me to do my thesis in, in, in technology and to think about it. We had obviously a big installed base of hospitals, physician groups, 
health systems. So I joined the advisory board company where I could basically provide strategic advice to those organizations. And then last but not least, uh, I felt that you need a role of government. Sets the rules, funds half the, the, the program. So I early, you know, out of undergrad, yep. felt like my career was gonna involve at various stages, work in each of the chairs around the table. And so as opportunities presented themselves, I could jump on where I could sit in different chairs. And, and government was the easiest because you could participate in government without working for the government. You could join committees, task forces, et cetera. So my mentor, Governor Mark Warner, he, and you know, I guess you, you could some de to some degree say this is uh, luck of having relationships, but you don't just stumble into relationships. You had to proactively say, look, I wanna help the community. And Governor Warner cared a lot about economic growth and. So I got to know a lot of the sort of local tech CEOs and helped represent, you know, what they might want to do with government to improve access to capital, et cetera. So built a relationship more broadly representing the tech industry to Governor Warner, but I shared my personal interest in healthcare. So he put me on the Medicaid board and then he decided early that he would create a healthcare task force for technology. I think it was called the Electronic Health Records Task Force. And so I was able to serve on the Electronic Health Records Task Force. And so between the Medicaid board and the Health Records Task Force, when Governor Kane thought about filling his cabinet, I had experience in state government in these domains that were, comp were, were proof that I could be a player in his administration in a productive way. So uh, it didn't hurt that unlike Secretary of Health, where the line for people who want the job goes down the street, around the corner, you know, into the other state. Right. The idea of a technology secretary was so new yeah. that there really wasn't a lot of awareness. So I sort of, you know, there's that proverbial big fish, little pond, little right. fish, big pond, whatever the expression is. And so by, it turns out the technology policy world was so small I could be a nobody, but raising my hand as a nobody with a few ideas, I could still get noticed and hopefully earn earn the trust and and, and, the, and to be a, a an effective voice. So th that was that was how what looks like I jumped from banking to advisory consulting to technology to government. It all actually yeah. was part of a master plan. And what I so many things you just said. I feel like there's so much I would like to react to, but you know, in the interest of time, the, the, what I'm hearing you say is one, you're passionate about certain topics and so you learned about them. So you, you have a curiosity to get smart and figure out what, at least based on what you just said, what I heard, you know, you saw this business need or even a community need or a government need and you recognize like, I wanna have an impact in this space. I wanna do something and make a difference and that curiosity to understand that and figure out how that system works. And then the other thing that you talked about that I think is so important and not enough people realize or practice, which is this idea of the side hustle or the idea of joining a committee or the idea of while you're doing one thing and if there's somewhere else you wanna be or there's somewhere else you want to get or achieve, how can you be a contributing factor to that? What are you giving back 
in order to ultimately gain that experience. So I, I really, I really appreciate that component of what you described. And then also, you're not the only person we've talked to that I love this too, this idea of variety, of, of being in different industries and in different spaces. So it, it helps cultivate different points of view. It helps you see when you're going to sit down and, and be a cabinet member, you've, you have a perspective that isn't just rooted in one type of role for a 20 year, 25 year career. So all of those things I feel like, I'm so glad you said them because I feel like it really can help people as they're thinking through there's lots of different ways to get to, to where you are, but like here's kind of a roadmap that you followed and it worked. So I, I appreciate that. Um, what about your, so now you're part of the Obama administration, that, that's a huge win given what you just described and how you somewhat maneuvered to get there. So you were there for three years, is that right? Uh, about two and a half. I started in 09 and I left in 2012. And the and, timing was, it was I started in March and I left in, in January. Is that common for people to to leave posts? I, I, I'm just not as familiar with, the, with that industry or, or that type of scene, so. Well, there are kind of generally speaking, you have people who run a hundred miles an hour and then they just crash because there's only so much you can get you can get done. And so for sure, I had a young family and I was working my tail off. I barely spent time with the kids and my wife. So there's a reality to work-life balance that is part of the equation. So it's, it is common for senior level officials to rotate just because it's a, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, uh, it's a very intense job, number one. Number two, uh, there are others who think of it more as a feather in the cap of a career where they're sort of, this is their, I'm going to do public service Brands. so they can run forever. They may not be as, and I don't want to characterize this in a negative way, but they may be more of a, what's the job to do? Well, I'll do my best at it, but not burn the midnight oil 24 by seven to get there. And so I found myself working really hard. Uh, I was also new. Uh, I was, you know, I didn't have friendships with President Obama or anybody else. I had to like get to know them earn their trust, work on really complicated issues. And so that was a very intense period of my life. Now, I had a couple of reasons where the transition was easier. Number one, my successor, Todd Park, I thought would do a phenomenal job. And so having him take the role to the next level was better for America because he had some uh, experience that he could he could that would he could bring to bear. Number two, and this got a little bit on my own personal journey. There had been uh, an election in Virginia in 2009 where the Democrats got wiped out, and so uh, a friend of mine who had been running for statewide office said, "Look, you know, there's going to be some competition for the governorship." but we don't really have a bench that's running for statewide office. A, you've done great work. B, as a technology leader, you're representing a, the right image for what that role could be, the future of Virginia. But you could also assemble a, a sort of a national team to, to get attention on the Virginia race that otherwise could just fall south again, having been shellacked in the night. So 
there was a unique window of opportunity to run for lieutenant governor of Virginia that I probably had I had my own druthers would consider a decade or so from now, but you can't quite plan for these things. Right. And so I made the tough judgment that A, the role I was in had certain uh, challenges. Uh, B, I had a replacement that could do a better job. And C, there's a chance that I could breathe, take a chance to do something in Virginia and shift my focus a bit to have much greater impact. I do think being an elected official, you can prioritize some of the things that I was executing and really take them to the finish line. So I still, as they believe, we can do so much more than we're doing now as a country in taking these technology data innovation capabilities and solving these big problems. But anyway, that timing affected my my career path. And so coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, I ended up losing my race. I lost 54-46 in my primary. It was really fun uh, in terms of the experience, traveling around the state, spending more time in an odd way with my parents, my, my wife, my kids as a parent, uh, and, and just sort of uh, bonding in, in, in a fun little, yeah. you know, unique moment in time, if you will. And so it didn't, it didn't, it didn't fit a, a career path narrative. There was some re- reactive uh, steps along the way. How hard was it to lose that race? And did you have a period of, I don't know if mourning is the right word, but, but to bounce back from that, that's that's tough. You're, you put yourself out there. You're, I can't imagine like that's, you know, it's gotta be a tough thing to, to bounce back from. Well, it's a very interesting thing. There was not a lot of signal about whether I was gonna win or lose. I had, there was only one poll that was published about a month or two before the election. And it had me up by six or seven points. That doesn't really say much because it was something like I was at 22, my opponent was at 14 or 15 and then other or not not aware was like majority. So it was, you know, you could read that two ways. No one knew who either of us was. If they did, maybe the tie went to me. But I had won every single debate we had like maybe a dozen of these face-offs, friendly, uh, not right. intense debates. So this, every signal I could extract was uh, victory. Yeah. So I had geared up for success and I was getting ready for the next round. It was not until uh, the results came in where, you know, a few of the counties that I was supposed to do better in came on the other way and, and, and so forth. So, it, uh, you know, only 2% turnout, so there's not a lot of signal in a 2% turnout race. Thankfully, Sanju Bansal, who's our co-founder at Care Journey, he immediately said, look, a, a lot of the ideas that you've been espousing speak to a public-private partnership, and there's no reason at all we shouldn't be uh, serving in the private sector version of that. So the very business model I introduced you to, in a way, in a way came from Huh. The all the mourning of the loss, but the natural next step to say you were running to do something on the public wow. side of the house, open up more data and encourage the private sector to participate. Why don't you organize the private sector side and and be the yang, yang to the ying, for lack of a better term. <laughs> so that part has worked out quite well. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for, for Sanju's support. And then he recruited Dan, our CEO, yeah. and really put the three of us together, which was great. It's such an amazing story because 
I feel like there's a lot of opportunities that come to you or to a person. It's not exactly the way you wrote it. It's not exactly the way you thought it would be. And, and to be open to the pivot or to that alternative lane. And I think having your sense of clarity of what was so important to you and you had a message and you knew what that was, the fact that, and it, obviously it's it's propelled and it's got a great momentum and so you you I mean I think that it was directionally accurate but also then you have this person that is a believer it can come from unsuspecting places and while you were, all your energy was in one place the fact that it came out in this other way I think is again just a testament to having a little bit of belief in whatever you believe in whether it's the universe or <laughs> some sort of divine sense that you know, things that are meant to be that are for the betterment of others, right? They, they come to fruition. The other thing you've mentioned a couple times, which I'm, I know I may be bouncing around a little in the order of, of what I want to talk to you about, but you've mentioned relationships a lot, and I've seen you in action, actually, on this front, and given that I'm passionate about soft skills and the development of these skills and other people, particularly those that I think are um, have less experience, you know, in a, in a couple of minutes, if you could describe how relationships have factored into your success, into your career path, and then also guidance and counsel for people on how to build better relationships in the context of, of business, really. How, how do you strategically and, and organically, right, so that it doesn't feel inauthentic? I'm curious what counsel you have or just some some reaction to how that's played out and, and maybe how you knew to do what you do so well. Is it innate or did someone teach you? If you'd like to advertise with Relatable, please email us at info at tfreemanassociates.com. So uh, my mentor uh, professionally was David Bradley, who had been the founder of the advisory board company, where I spent almost a decade of my career. David had a set of core values that he instilled upon all of us. And chief among them was this idea of the spirit of generosity, the idea that you would, or surplus value, he had these as two separate pillars. And the idea was we would, in any relationship, uh, always make sure that the person with whom you're interacting gets more out of it than you do. And if you have that humility uh, in your DNA, then inevitably you'll have built up a reservoir of goodwill to tackle whatever problems that you wish to tackle in the future. And so David, my, my philosophy historically has been uh, to say yes to everybody, to be helpful. That's a little bit why my schedule is insane because I basically say yes to everybody. Not that I'm asking their time, they're asking of mine, I'm right. just saying yes. And so in general, uh, if you take that philosophy and you have no expectations on the other side of it, but you just generally get goodwill because you enjoy helping people and, and you have something you can offer and it's not that you know complicated, it didn't cost me much to do it. So, uh, that's been my view and uh, you know governor kane called me not chief technology officer but chief collaboration officer and he said that specifically because 
I had a unique experience. Rather than fight for my turf in a cabinet, I would basically say, how can I help you advance your goals? I want to support you. Whether I have any direct benefit from it or not was sort of secondary. And so that, uh, I think that's worked out well. In the White House, you know, you have the same problem. You have this soft power, uh, hard power. Mm. People look to the fact that the job I held reported directly to the president. I had got one of the prestigious assistant to the president titles, which means that I basically there was no line between me and the president. If, if, if there was ever a need, I could send a note to the president directly and say, look, this is going in the wrong direction, please stop. And one could do that obnoxiously and just insert yourself, you know, in all kinds of ways, right. make it really annoying for everybody, or you acknowledge that you have this role, but you put it in your back pocket and you simply talk to anybody in the cabinet and say, look, what, what do you want to do? And any chance you on your own think that there's a hole in your, you know, your blind spot that you, you might want us to fill and then can we thoughtfully fill it? Do you want to appoint a CTO who's going to take on these responsibilities for you inside your organization or not? And so we had many of a cabinet member doing that. So if you, if you take uh, people who are predisposed to turf and to wanting to control and develop fiefdoms, you know, I don't think these titles would have, the CTO role in the hands of someone who cared about, this is my territory, I own it, would have been a dramatically different role than the tone we set, which was more in a servant's heart, I guess would be the way to think about mm -hmm. it. That's how I'm lead, that's how I've led my life. And I would expect, uh, you know, that's what people saw that was valuable when, when we did that. Yeah, I love that because I, I do a lot of coaching and I often do interview coaching. And part of that is understanding what value you're going to bring. And I talk to people about that a lot in terms of that interview process because it's less about that interview and, and packaging what you're saying. It's what are you, what, how are they going to be different tomorrow if they hire you today? And this, this value proposition and how, and maybe that's growing up in consulting, I don't know, but I, I do feel like it's such an important piece and it gets missed a lot. It's not so much what are you going to do for me or how's your organization going to pay me or how, how, what kind of total rewards. Like it's important that you understand that it's a reciprocal relationship and you're not being taken advantage of at the same time. If you come from a place of how can I help and I want to add value and I want to make this better than it was yesterday, I think you, you just opportunities happen and they occur. And I think that's what you just described. So I. I love that. T tell me just for a minute. I mean, I, I don't know. This is kind of a hard question to answer, but I, I am curious. Like you seem like a really confident human <laughs> and to and to jump into that situation that you've described with President Obama and just really a lot of what you've talked about. I'm curious, how, how did you build your confidence? Is it something that you had early in your life? Like are there certain things that led to you feeling that more so, you know, in your kind of later years versus your former. I'm curious if, if um, people are trying to build a little self-confidence and, and build a little of, um, you know, being able to know that you can add that value by, you know, on day one. Tell me a little bit about how you cultivated that. Well, you, you know, if you have substance and what you have to say is uh, backed up 
and you feel like the the content of the messages you know is sufficient my my view is there's very little you 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 can't you can't do it i didn't feel any limitations on it so to me uh confidence comes from backing it up having done the work if you if you don't do the work then you you know the sucker is to be handed to you you know for the sake of it, it it's 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 got to be earned and and to me that that is fr- frankly that's that's what separates i mean there are a lot of folks that think that they have confidence but it's built off of arrogance not on on substance and i had come to the conclusion that i'd rather have confidence born out of you know i've done the homework i feel this is my judgment and it reflects the best of my thinking and so that so therefore i'm 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 quite comfortable with what we're doing here and so uh so, so that that is uh yeah that's that's the uh that's the that's I, the philosophy i think one thing you do really well too that i've seen in action is you ask a lot of questions and i you part of that is the the work part and the curiosity of making sure that you're thinking of every angle and that you're thinking ahead and that you're anticipating and you know i've 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 been i've had the benefit of seeing you in action doing that and i think that's a part of when you learn as much as you can and you have that substance behind you there's less room for failure even though failure i think still is a good thing cuz you learn from it but i do think then people start to have a certain experience with you that is consistent and then people want to come back to you and then that breeds your own confidence right because now you're it's like a self-perpetuating prophecy in that kind of way all right i want to be sensitive to your time and i just have a couple more questions um one i'd love to talk a little bit about your book um because among all your other accomplishments and this this is like a double i'm going to try to fit two questions into one Yeah. <laughs> uh because I can be efficient with time and I'm going to I'm going to do it. So your book, it's titled um Innovative State How New Technologies Can Transform Government, a lot of what you've talked about already. I'm curious about what prompted you to write the book and then I think I want to dovetail that you'd mentioned hard work. So I I do want to dovetail that. I I doubt you just took 6 months and went and wrote a book. So my feelings knowing you a little bit is that you you were doing that in parallel while you were doing other things and That's true. How do you you know, you work very hard and um I'm just curious that like drive to work hard, that drive to pursue excellence maybe it's in some sort of intersection with the book maybe not, but I'm just curious about those two things. um and maybe if you could co- just talk a little bit about the process of writing the book i mean that's not something like you've had these experiences that are so so unique that not many people get to have in their life so tell me about being an author and how that came to be yeah so i'll tackle both yeah. and i'll I'll start here which is my back to sort of philo- philosophies uh my philosophy had been uh i want to solve problems and early on in my life I wanted to solve problems I felt like no greater calling than to be a part of helping you know your neighborhood your friends your family your country uh be more effective so I I'd always felt that there was a chance to do more but not obvious you know you can do that a couple of ways you 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 fit in a box and you do the job in the box really well so I want to be the director of X because X is going to be in charge of something and I'll do it incrementally better than the person before me and we'll have impact. My view is 
there are a lot of problems that we've not solved and they feel like we're not going to solve them. There's sort of a fear and a sense of dismay mm. or a little disappointment, you know, that we're not going to solve climate change or we're not going to get the poorest among us to lift up. And my view was that just reflects the lack of creativity. Let's change the way we solve problems. And so as I was building up my experience, both in state government and then at the federal level, it became very obvious to me that we can have people massively disagree on whether or not we should subsidize food stamps for the poor. But it turned out everybody agreed, wouldn't it be nice to make healthier food cheaper and accessible for everybody? Right. And so if you flip the narrative, and say, well, can we use technology, data, and innovation to do that? Whether that ultimately results in subsidies or unsubsidized, if at the end of the day, it's cheaper, faster, easier to get out, to get access to healthier food uh, at an affordable price. I had plenty of Republican conversations that said, yeah, we're in. We, we don't want people to not have healthy food. We just don't want to be subsidizing, you know, this this benefit right uh or at least not to the tune of the millions of people that get it so i started feeling like if we could educate people that were feeling despondent that we were not going to solve problems i thought let me communicate to them that in fact we can solve problems we just got to work on defining the problem and applying our brain power in a certain way and so I was able to do some of that, you know, representing the president as CTO, but ultimately it's the president and he would have to, you know, he had a lot of things to do and whether this message was the top priority or the second or the third or the fourth. So I spoke on my own and as I decided to run for office, I thought whether I win or I lose, let me publish a playbook mm -hmm. for people that want to communicate this way and solve problems this way. So if I was lucky, in parallel, I would have the book come out while I took office and implement this and give people uh -huh. hope. Or if I lost my campaign, I could still have this, you know, I could communicate how this would work. So uh, I had the structure of an idea because of the role, unique role of USCTO, there was a sort of an implicit market demand for me saying something right. because of how it's going to roll. Right, right. But I didn't have to go through the, oh, who are you and why are you trying to sell me a book idea? It was more like, okay, if you want to do this, you can. What do you want to say in this context? And then I had a college roommate who's a phenomenal writer who agreed to like be my partner. Yeah, And awesome. could tolerate me in this period of time. <laughs> so I was running for office, writing the book, giving speeches. Oh raising the family and it was a wild time but it all worked out and uh, uh, we are where we're supposed to be so right. so I was not supposed to be lieutenant governor of Virginia I was supposed to found care journey and to help build this coalition to make healthcare better uh, and who knows what the next chapter is going to look like if there's care journey 2.0 or care journey for education or something and, and we'll figure it all out yeah. I love the idea, and I'm trying to do this myself personally, of just being thinking bigger. Like, we're all so limited by our own limiting beliefs of what we can do. 
And just hearing you say that, I feel like is so motivational in terms of why not, instead of all of the reasons why we can't. That's such a great message. I, I guess on the hardworking front, I mean, you mentioned this before, it's like a part of being prepared. It's a part of maybe the substance. It's a part of, I'm just thinking too, like growing up in your family, was it expected? Like you just work hard. That's part of like how you exist. That's what you do. Yeah. Yep, you do. It's just, yeah, it's sort of expected. And then I guess I, I would ask you, I mentioned the relation. I have two last questions for you on the relationship front. Uh, or not on the relationship front, on the, on the soft skills front, you had mentioned networking relationships. When I think about soft skills and I think about a bit of a, de a deficit in what we're seeing today with some of our less experienced um, employees, but even our youth to some extent, the ability to communicate effectively, the ability to influence, the ability to present, the ability to actively listen, like these are some of the skills that I feel are, are lacking and I'm on a mission to help us develop those skills. I'm curious in your career and everything that you've talked about, if you had to pick one or two that you believe need some dedicated time or that have served you well, what, what would they be? I do think this idea of spirit of generosity mm -hmm. is, is something that, you that. know, is a muscle we need to exercise. And I think we do a good job of it at Care Journey, but yeah. we could always do better. Yep. I yep. would say the second thing is uh, this idea of, that, that just means you have a servant's heart, we wanna do well for others. This second angle is a little bit more to the discussion we had, which is every interaction we have, the person with whom we're interacting should have more out of it than we put into it. And I think that that philosophy is one that uh, if we had more and more of our folks engaged, it would it would have you know much much bigger impact. So that that's what I would say about that. Love it. Last question. Awesome. Love it. <laughs> I'm on board. Thank um, you. As we close out, and you think about young Anish, either high school aged Anish or early in your career, and you're thinking about the experiences you've had to date and you had to give Anish some counsel or some advice that might make his path a little less painful or stressful or, you know, some sort of sage counsel and advice, what would you share with him? Probably the most important thing, which is uh, no matter what uh, your personal ambitions may be, always focus on uh, the family and that, you know, uh, whatever happens in your life, that, that investing in that in, in, in your family, you know, is, is primary and everything else is secondary. So that's that's probably my number one advice to myself is to is to make sure that you're aware of, of the power of family. So um, I will I will I will leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you again. Really appreciate it. This was awesome and uh, lots of great counsel and advice. So we really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Anish Chopra. One of the things I love about this conversation is that you went into specific detail about how you navigated your career from undergrad through grad school and beyond. You provide clarity for 
a how-to guide for those interested in politics, those wanting to impact policy, or potentially be president of a business. Your comments about hard work, learning as much as you can, and the spirit of generosity and the importance of family are powerful and something we can all learn from. Thank you also to my producer, Missy, and thank you listeners for joining us in 2021. As a reminder, if you like Relatable, please subscribe, leave comments, and rate Relatable. We can be found on most streaming platforms. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable.